Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. And uh, today we have Michael Leithhead, who's the Global Head of Fixed Income for EFG as well. Uh, and of course, the fund manager of various new capital fixed income funds. So uh, Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, mate. It's always good to be here. Great. So um, just maybe a quick uh, introduction to uh, uh, to what we're thinking about today. We just had the Fed meeting uh, yesterday uh, and also we just had the uh, Bank of England also uh, this, uh, this morning or this afternoon. Uh, so lots of kind of central banks. We had the ECB last week. There's a lots of um, lots of uh, um, I guess post-holiday uh, central bank action, um, and um, and obviously fixed income markets have been quite well contained. So I would say the the um, uh, treasury bond market has been um, uh, a bit flatter yesterday, but steeper in terms of yield curve today. And then obviously we've seen more pronounced sell-off in European bond markets, and particularly the bond market, um, maybe suggestive of you know continuous stimulus coming through in the ECB and uh, and indeed in in Germany, particularly ge- ahead of the German election. Um, but uh, I guess the first question Michael is uh, thoughts on from a fixed income perspective thoughts on the Fed and what they uh, well what Chair Powell had to say yesterday and um, uh, and the market reaction to it so I think most people would probably be surprised that we didn't see a you know a a bit of more of a sell-off in treasuries we're you know trending around the sort of 130 mark on the 10-year treasury for the last few weeks and there's been a very slow uptrend I guess in terms of 10-year treasury yields and I think most people would have expected given perhaps the shift in the dot plot we've seen you know the balance uh, shift from being um, a hold in in 2022 to be 50-50 for hikes in 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 2022 versus 2023 so I think most people would have thought just on the face of it that it would be a bit more hawkish um and we might have seen a bit more of a sell-off in, in, in the 10-year Treasury. I think in terms of the big question at the moment, I guess, is you know, to what extent um, the Fed might move early and then you know choke off maybe a little bit more of the excess growth. Um, if growth continues to pick up, and I think it was a very positive message in terms of the growth outlook, then, uh, then you would anticipate a steeper yield curve from that. So... I think probably the the initial market reaction is probably not the right one. I think probably we, you know, what we're there's probably a few other concerns in the market as well that's sort of weighing on treasury yields right now, but you'd have to say that probably if we continue along this path and indeed, you know, the uh, the pace of tapering and the pace of um rate hikes is brought forward then you'd expect to see the 10-year treasury probably steeper in in the coming months. So uh, the key elements I guess was the expectation that taper would start in November and essentially, you know, completely tail off by by May, uh, essentially, um, which I think was quite uh, a pointed, you know, period. In fact, May 2022, I would have thought was quite quick relative to what we've seen in the past. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think the bond market reaction to that slightly more hawkish narrative uh, was a was a was a surprise, but yeah, I I, I tend to agree that that the bond market reaction uh, was the initial bond market reaction is probably not the right reaction. Um, so the other debate uh, around U.S. interest rates 
are around two things. Um, obviously, the inflation worry and then the uh, growth worry or the employment situation. Um, so thoughts around, any thoughts around what the Fed is going to be clearly focused on, uh, you know, in this next kind of six to nine month period? Sure. So I think, you know, a lot of people are focused on inflation. I think probably, in my opinion, it's probably the labour market, which is now the, the key driver in terms of how quickly that recovery is coming on. I think in terms of the labour market, we've seen a huge amount of job openings. I think there are record levels and indeed, you know, quits are pretty high as well. So it's sort of in, it sort of suggests that, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for labour to come back into the, into the market. Um, I think that probably there's a bit of friction at the moment. So the numbers we've seen in, in terms of the recent jobs numbers have been sort of a bit mixed. Um, some very you know, surprised on the upside, some surprised on the downside. Um, but I guess there's still a lot of these changes, post-COVID changes as um, you know benefits roll off, people go back to school, economy opens up. You know, it takes time to get jobs. It takes time for people to return to the workforce. So I think probably you know, month on month numbers could be a bit mis misleading, but I think probably looking at the overall trend, you know, the overall trend is very positive. So I think it's probably the labour market, which is going to be the most telling. Um, I think at the moment, the debate on inflation is to what extent is this short term base effects, short term supply chain pressures, and how much will that sort of drop out in the years to in the year to come? Um, and I guess if we do have those types of pressures, you know, particularly on the supply chain side, it'd be difficult to see the Fed wanting to hike when you've got a supply side shock because monetary policy really can't, you know, probably isn't the right method for controlling that sort of um, that, that sort of uh, supply induced inflation. Whereas if wages steadily pick up, if wage, if if prices start to, you know, uh, increase. From a cyclical perspective, then obviously that's where monetary policy is going to have a much more effective impact in terms of controlling uh, inflation. So I think where the inflation comes from really matters and to the extent that, you know, it's supply versus demand driven uh, will probably help to determine, you know, how reactive the Fed are, assuming we get that path on the on the labour side. Mm. So on the um, jobs, you know, uh, as we just talked about, job openings at record level, and people are still quitting their existing jobs. So you've got this gap that is created between people wanting to get a job and people um, who want a new job, if you like. So um, what's, I mean, any thoughts around that that particular issue? Um, and are there any sort of trends in there, do you think, that we should be worried about? I guess in terms of the underlying trends, um, I guess it's a question of which segments of the uh, labour market are really sort of accelerating. So, you know, is it, are we seeing full participation? Are we seeing the, um, uh, I guess, the lower um, income parts of, uh, the, uh, of, the, of the social, you know, economic uh, population demographics coming back into the to workforce there's been a very stark difference between you know um, racial groups for example in 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 the US between the black and Hispanic groups versus say you know, um, you know college educated white uh, demographics so I think the Fed is moving towards a more kind of um, inclusive 
uh, framework and obviously the social impact is important. So I think where you see that job creation, whether it's in particular sectors of the economy, if it's in you know hospitality and that kind of that kind of really, really matters because it's probably telling you that uh, we're starting to fill those job openings and we're starting to fill the opportunities and the economy is really on track. So I think it's the underlying dynamics do matter. I think not only from the perspective of giving you an uh, idea of where the labour market's going, but also from the perspective of policy where you know, the Fed has maybe got a wider remit than it has in the past in terms of inclusivity. Mm. Certainly, um, uh, the Fed's taken on ESG very importantly. Um, I, I guess the other thing that, that certainly has been going through, certainly in my mind at least, is, you know, Amazon paying their workers, you know, $15 an hour, $17.5 an hour, and, and possibly high at some point. And then, um, you know, the traditional restaurant you know, worker or hotel worker who is still substantially below that and whether Amazon, given its kind of huge sort of draw in terms of uh, growing its, um, its staff base, is just drawing people out and, and saying, well, you know, I don't want to work for that wage. Do you think there's a risk that the, the Amazons of this world uh, and others who are just ramping up wages are going to you know, force change further, you know, in, in wider industries like like restaurants or catering or those industries? I guess in terms of, you know, these structure, big structural shifts, we've seen them in the past from different industries, right? And um, I guess, you know, there are those uh, less labour-intensive and more labour-intensive industries. And if you have these companies, I guess it depends on what, you know, which companies are actually expanding in what areas and um, if they can take on you know uh, people who maybe don't have those levels of education uh, that you typically see maybe in the catering industry or whatever um, I guess it's it's a demographic you know structural unemployment issue and it's it'll be interesting to see to what extent the changes in the structure of the economy and the structure of you know commerce kind of suck in new uh, new employees and whether or not actually you're right that pushes up inflation and other or wage inflation and other segments of the economy because people no longer want to do those jobs for you know the discount wage and there's actually a better job driving an uber or or delivering amazon packages or whatever mm. so uh talking about delivering amazon packages let's move on to the uk so um obviously today um this or certainly this afternoon we saw a headline popping on our bloomberg screens about uh, bp um, uh, closing down a few petrol stations because they couldn't get uh, truck drivers to uh, to deliver the uh, uh, d- deliver petrol to to those fuel pumps, um, which is obviously quite a shocking you know development uh, for people living in the UK. Plus, you've got energy prices and you've got all these issues have suddenly you know cropped up. Um, is this the first signs we're seeing that the UK economy? Um, pre-Brexit, if you like, had that flexibility where lots of you could just suck in a whole load of people from abroad and, you know, you could bring in 500 truck drivers in a moment's notice because you've got a wider pool of people to, to take in from mm. um, versus today where that pool is very, very limited and clearly is creating problems. Is this, do you think, the beginnings of um, a you know, a, a UK economy that is going to be much more inflationary than it was in the past? 
it does seem that way in the sense that we are sort of seeing these shortages in labor um and we've had a you know we've been importing labor from abroad for some time and, and you know i think uh Certainly, the, the sort of numbers you see in terms of the lack of HGG, HGV drivers is quite um, quite interesting, and how long it takes then to train those people to do those jobs. And you see, um, you know, particularly people who moved abroad as a result of you know COVID, they're not coming back to those jobs. So a lot of Eastern European lorry drivers, etc. I think that's why we've got these these significant shortages. I mean, those shortages are elsewhere in the world as well at the moment. I think there's a substantial um, shortage in Europe and also in in the US. But I guess in terms of the flexibility and the transferability of labour, we've lost that flexibility to get get, uh, a lot of that labour back. So it does seem that, you know, even on top of the supply chain issues that we're seeing that are pushing things like, you know, gas prices going high, impacting CO2 and whether you can get your chicken for the weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the longer term, you sort of see this risk of a shortage of labour pushing up uh, pushing up wage prices in the UK, perhaps more so than in other parts of the uh, the world. And certainly, anecdotally, you know, my, my in-laws were down at the, uh, down on holiday in Devon, and they were telling me that um, they couldn't get a reservation in a, in a restaurant because there weren't, there simply weren't enough staff. And I think we probably in the UK all experienced that kind of that sort of labor shortage mm. in different places over the summer. And so you kind of think longer term that this is going to be this could be a bit of a, a pinch point. Um, so I think the question then is, you know, how does that translate into the gilt market? How does that translate into, you know, yields? And that's a bit more of a tricky one, because obviously, I think the Bank of England will probably look to be a bit more hawkish and um, they'll want to try and contain some of that sort of uh, wage inflation as well so in some respects you know there's a there's an element of seeing those sort of things on the horizon which probably make the bank of england one of the more hawkish central banks going forward and certainly what you saw today was um you know perhaps a little bit more hawkish than people might have anticipated we saw guilt yields you know pick up a little bit so the question really is how far can the bank of england go um and i guess one of the big problems in the uk is that you know there's a big feedback loop from rates into you know mortgages and uh, consumer discretionary spending so in terms of sort of peak rates um although probably you say the uk is more inflationary you kind of wonder if it can reach the sort of same levels as the us might so it's a you know it's, it's a bit of a balancing act in my opinion mm. No, exactly. But certainly one would certainly say the risk premium that one deserves for it is definitely much higher uh, than it than it was before. So certainly that would lend to greater risks, I would say, for uh, policy error, greater risk for, you know, runaway, you know, uh, inflation and, and, uh, and, and, you know, cost push coming through. Mm, I, think um, all, I, I mean, I think all central banks right now are erring on the side of caution. And you see that in a variety of statements about how the option value is to wait, mm. not to act soon. So I think there is a more of a danger that we, we end up having wait a long time and then have to hike more aggressively mm. re- relative to maybe taking you know things uh, a little bit more cautiously. Mm, absolutely. So let's turn our attention to, um, to Europe. Obviously, the big um, moves recently have been the the 10-year bond, you know, (laughs) um, heading to the grand level of zero. Um, But um, 
uh, thoughts on that? It, you know, uh, obviously we're seeing a lot more fiscal spend. Look, looking though, as, as we come to German election, there seems to be a carrot that's been dangling in front of the population. What's your What's your thoughts around uh, you know European rates? Um, and you know, putting you on the spot a bit, do you think European rates underperform US rates? I think I struggle to see them underperforming US rates. I think, you know, um, in terms of, you know, sort of thinking about you know, the next six months, I think the the Fed is always going to be seen as much more uh, able to hike rates than, than the ECB. So whilst you could see a sell-off in Bunds and it may be from a starting point of negative 30 or where mm-hmm. we were a few mm-hmm. months ago, negative mm-hmm. 50, um, you know, it will feel it will feel like a uh, you know a bit of a uh, a bit more of an interesting change from maybe you know one thirty to one sixty on say on, on, on treasuries or a little bit more. But mm. um, but I think um, uh, I think the I wouldn't see it as underperforming the uh, the Fed. Um, I think in terms of what the sort of market's thinking about, you know, e- even next year, even though the f- I think the ECB are, uh, you know, planning to sort of um, end the PEP, and I guess there is um, the plan to sort of have some kind of replacement system. Um, I think, you know, in terms of bond issuance, actually the bond issuance is also forecast to drop. So in terms of the net purchases, I don't think it's going to be, you know, it's not going to look so... Um, uh, you know, there's not a huge wave of, of debt coming onto the scene. So if you do have this growth and you do have this recovery, then it seems sensible to have a bit more risk premium in, in bunds. And I think, you know, certainly that's what the 10-year bund is really saying, is like, what are the risks that the, the ECB can actually move off off the current uh, interest rate stance in the, in the medium term? And, and also you're seeing the inflation pressures as well. So, I mean... I think, um, yeah. Although the ECB kind of adjusted their inflation targeting earlier in the year as well, um, I think they're probably seen as a little bit more hawkish when it comes to inflation than than the other central banks. Mm. No, exactly. I think one thing obviously was done in the uh, in the review policy review a few months back was this you know notion of not going above two percent, but actually having a much more flexible policy around that two percent. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether they're a lot more, you know, dovish than they have been in the past, as a result of uh, of that additional flexibility. Obviously, we need to see what happens, mm. uh, but certainly, I think that's uh, something that gives me a little bit more confidence that the ECB will be, you know, not having to act as we get close to two percent, or rather, wait until they're over two percent before they do something. Uh, which um, which I think is uh, psychologically is a very very interesting you know development and uh, certainly since that review the euro has been weaker which are, as a currency so which I think certainly adds weight to that to um, to ECB being a little bit more um, flexible uh, so let's move on to to credit um, and um, um, let's start with the most conservative so investment grade uh, spreads. Any, any thoughts? Obviously, we're we're close to record tights. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think there's any more juice left in there? I mean, as you say, it's in terms of in terms of spreads, we're pretty much at the tightest levels we see. We're in the bottom ten percent of observations over the last twenty years, so it's difficult to see a huge amount more uh, tightening. Um, but equally, you know, the risks of material spread widening, particularly in investment grade, seem you know somewhat limited. 
and you've got you know the liquidity basically f- you know from the central banks still sort of supporting that end of the market and as long as growth remains on a fairly stable trajectory then you know companies are looking pretty healthy from an investment grade perspective so it's it's uh it's probably it's probably going to be a sort of sideways move for spreads i think that probably makes you know pure developed market investment grade a little bit more sensitive to rates from you know than they probably have been in the past i think it's slightly different when you contrast it with say emerging markets or high yield where you're still seeing a degree of this inverse correlation that we've seen whereby you know as rates have come down yields have actually been relatively steady and opened up a spread gap so certainly that's what we've seen in emerging market investment grade for example in the last sort of month or so or two months or so i'd say where treasury yields have been coming down but actually yields in emerging markets have remained relatively stable the risk premium from a credit perspective has obviously gone up because you know the yield mm-hmm. is the credit spread plus the plus the plus the treasury but um in terms of the the volatility it's meant that actually yields have been stable and 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 you're getting this kind of lower volatility from some of the emerging markets so the big question i I think for everybody and certainly the worry that people have had over the course of the last say six months is the correlation trade so rates sell off and emerging market spreads widen at the Mm -hmm. same time as everyone tries to rush out the door at the same time how do we mitigate for that you know how do you think about that going forward is that just something we just need to live with the, this is just gonna just gonna happen, uh, and how do you balance? So how does one balance the fixed income portfolio from uh, from that? So I think in terms of emerging markets, we think about it as a sort of homogenous set, um, and actually you got to think about it in terms of quality and vulnerability, or quality and risk. And I think what's been telling has been that countries that have been more sensitive to the risks associated with rising yields, or you know, a stronger US dollar have been the countries that have underperformed. So, you know, you look at some of the the risks that are coming on an idiosyncratic basis as well. You know, we look at the Brazilians, for example, hiking rates quite aggressively to control inflation. That's going to have a negative implication for the economy. That's potentially, you know, going into next year's elections. These are the types of things that increase volatility and risk premium. So I think you've got this combination of the macro side, the global picture, which is about vulnerability and, 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 and security, if you like, in terms of the sensitivity to dollar and rates. And then you've got the idiosyncratic stuff. So when it comes to sort of balancing your portfolio, I think given where credit spreads are still, it should be a focus on quality in whichever ratings bucket you are looking for countries that have, you know, solid balance sheets that are going to be able to weather, you know, perhaps tighter liquidity conditions stronger us dollar um versus say um those that are going to be much more dependent on the liquidity crisis the the liquidity supply particularly since debt has kind of um ballooned as a result of covid and it was there was an ft article sort of pointing uh from the uh, costa rican president saying basically that um they needed more support on that side of things and costa rica is a good example of a country where debt has really risen mm. so you've got kind of debt for emerging markets kind of rising uh, debt levels rising you've got greater u.s rate sensitivity and dollar sensitivity 
Um, and so, you know, one just has to be a little bit more diversified, a bit more balanced in terms of the risk they take in those in those in those markets. And mm-hmm. you know, just to kind of reiterate the point you made is is quality EM is is still the best place to be, rather than um, uh, you know going or, or being much more barbelled. You know, and and just understanding that when rates go up, you know, even that's because the global economy is doing better, doesn't necessarily mean that um, that spreads are going to stay tight. I mean, it could be the other way. Spreads widen as everyone rushes out. Yeah, I think the other thing in the emerging market space, in particular, is to is to have a diverse a degree of diversification mm. because I mean, as we've seen in places like Peru. You've seen these election results, which have sort of thrown out um, spreads. We've seen ratings uh, ratings downgrade, and the starting point is obviously very strong. So, in terms of defensibility of their position, they're starting from a very good position. And if you're invested in a country like that, then potentially, you know, you're more sheltered from the impact. But if you're going into countries that are going through election cycles, COVID has obviously been very disruptive socially. It's big. You know, I think there's going to be big political. Uh, changes to come around the world. We we're already seeing that sort of um, social movement pr- prior to to COVID, and potentially that's going to be a source of disruption. Election cycles are going to become really important. Mm. So uh, that's a very good point. You know, watching the elections in each of these countries is going to be key. And obviously, we've got Brazil is probably the big one for next year from an emerging market perspective. Now, one of the emerging markets that suffered recently has been China. Um, and obviously the uh, the obviously it's not you can't say default yet because because it hasn't defaulted but but uh, but close to default Evergrande uh, and what the government's doing. Um, um, I mean, before we go do a deeper dive into that, um, um, it, you know, we got to realise that um, the property sector in China is just massively important. You know, it's one of those. You know, if you take it from an investor perspective, uh, the Chinese have very limited investment options. You know, they typically don't buy the stock market because it's volatile. Uh, they typically buy wealth management products that guarantee coupons, and and there are some nasties and funnies in that uh, as well. And so the only natural place they have is kind of cash, cash plus, if there is such a thing with, with these wealth management products, and real estate. Um, so real estate is is systemically important for uh, the Chinese economy. Um, obviously, the issues with uh, Evergrande have been out there. You know, now most newspapers and um, journalists have, have been covering it quite well. I would say, is there anything in Evergrande that you think that people haven't really discussed that you know that we should be thinking about? So I think uh, I think it's more. For me, it's about the f- the knock-on effects of Evergrande. So I don't think I think most of the press has been about actually how this can be contained from a contagion perspective. That actually, you know, systemically this shouldn't have knock-on effects. And I think the expectation is certainly that the government will come in, not so much with a bailout package, but with an organised you know restructuring. And I think it's important to remember that you whilst you go into default, defaults you know can differ. You can have defaults which are complete bankruptcies and liquid, you know, liquidations, which can be quite disorderly, or you can have a restructuring of debt, terming out you know, maturities, um, you know, changing the coupons on bonds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which can be much more orderly. And I think that's that's the sort of consensus view of how this is going to be managed. 
clearly what the Chinese government have done is put a lot of pressure on the property sector. And I think, you know, certainly if you look at the legislation that came in last year around three red lines, that's one thing for the to delever the um, the property companies. But at the same time, they also put constraints on mortgages and on bank lending to, to, to property companies. So you've got this liquidity squeeze on the property sector, which I think could have a knock on Im- impact because, you know, consumer wealth is tied up in that, uh, as you mentioned. And because um, it's just such a vast part of the Chinese economy that it's obviously going to have a knock-on impact. And I think um, yeah, that could constrain growth. And I, I do wonder if that's one of the factors that's actually keeping you know, US Treasury yields a little bit you know, more depressed right now because there's a question mark of whether we go through a sort of 2014-2015 type impact where, if you recall, I guess the Fed was struggling to, to hike because growth, global growth maybe wasn't as strong as it could have been. So I think, you know, when it comes to Evergrande, the, you know, the government will really want to protect the social dimension as well. So thinking about that, you know, the wealth management products, they so you know, supposedly, well, that, that they have issued, but also the contractors that, um, that uh, Evergrande have been, uh, you know, essentially not paying. And all of this started really, I think, in, in sort of April time or so, when Evergrande was taken to court by a contractor, suddenly people were sort of waking up to the fact that actually they could be sued and that banks were going to start to put caps on, you know, their liquidity. So this is really a liquidity crisis, I think. No, exactly. So um, um, obviously $300 billion of debt is big. Uh, Chinese real estate um, makes up around 43% of the uh, Asia high yield bond index. Um, which obviously is very very big, and obviously spreads have just blown out, and it's all 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 become very tricky. Are you finding Asia, even despite the issues, is now cheaper than some of the other emerging market fixed income areas? So I think it has become you know it has been quite isolated. You know, clearly the property sector has blown out quite a long way. I think um, on you know as a sort of rough calculation. The um, it, the Chinese property now accounts for about twenty percent of the 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 spread in the in the um, in the sort of global emerging market high yield index. If you take the the, the Bank of America uh, ICE index, um, and so you know clearly what's happened is you've had this one sector that's kind of been driven wider, and um, the and the, the rest of the the market has been a little bit more. Um, isolated so you know clearly the the market is less worried about the contagion effects into other areas we haven't necessarily seen big fund outflows that have driven you know the broader asian market wider so you know whilst there's been a bit of volatility around the chinese names um i think that's partly down to the the whole regulatory pressure rather than necessarily this particular one uh, evergrande factor if you like um and that the volatility we've seen in the tech Names the Meituans, the um, the um, um, the Weibo's of the world. Those you've seen that volatility as well. It's been more related to the regulation than necessarily you know this particular sort of contagion risk. So I think it's where there is potentially some uh, correlation. It's around China and Chinese regulation rather than necessarily um, spreading from the property sector. Mm. So given how big the property sector is to 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 china um and obviously there's still 
tackling Delta variant in different states within within China as well. Economic growth weaker. Do you expect then the Chinese to react with, you know, interest rate cuts and and further fiscal stimulus? So I think definitely in terms of stimulus, that you'd expect that to come in at some point in time. I think the question is where and and in you know in in what form. I think um, you know we've already seen some R R R cuts in the mm. last you mm. know six months or so. So you know th- I think there is an awareness that perhaps there was a degree of over tightening on on the economic side, but equally a lot of these policies are around you know the regulatory policies are around you know social objectives rather than economic objectives and i guess the question is how do they balance the two so perhaps this the stimulus will come in the form of um you know things that are pointed at the social objectives rather than the uh, the economic ones and they'll mm. try to maintain a degree of that tightness on the sectors that they they feel the um you know damaging to the to the social side mm. so with evergrande is it like likely that soes will take over state-owned enterprises property companies will take over the development of those properties, make sure they're finished and completed, um, and um, and then the kind of debt gets restructured, both the offshore one, possibly the onshore one as well? I think in terms of the debt restructuring, you'd expect to see the offshore debt, you know, easy, more easily restructured from, a, you know, from just from the perspective that it's isolated, it's not secured, there's mm-hmm. less, there's an ability to... Um, you know, it's not ranked parapasu to any of the other investors, so it's mm. much easier to restructure that debt. Mm. I think you will see some restructuring on the on the onshore debt as well. On the management side of things, absolutely, I think the the the, the key outcome they'll want is to make sure that um, you know retail investors in property get delivered their property. I mean, that would be a bit of a social impact. I mean, you think there's. Over a million properties to be delivered, you know that's a huge uh, impact on 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 the consumer. Um, and equally, you don't want the knock-on effects on the contractors who are building or providing services to to Evergrande. So I think that the the objective will be to put a management team in place, remove the old management team, keep the business operational, and um, try and deliver the uh, the existing properties, and then repay the, what they can from the debts. Mm. It's a kind of thing is a very, very well trodden path. <laughs> uh, they know how to do this. Um, so let's move to kind of other themes that are, are out there. Um, and, you know, more specifically, there is a, a you know, big mega trend is ESG and what's going around, around ESG um, and obviously green bonds and, and, and these areas. Um, any thoughts in terms of um, the you know the overall direction that this is taking, and you know possibly some of the pitfalls? So I think in terms of the direction, the direction is one way. We're seeing you know increased sustainability linked bonds. We're seeing increased green bonds. We're seeing um, greater ESG disclosure from companies. Um, pretty much, if I roll back two years, every company that came with a new bond issue. You know, I mean, one in maybe one in ten would have some ESG component to it. Now, I'd say it's more like uh, every single company in the developed market, and then probably ninety percent of EM have some kind of you know ESG um, disclosure within their 
their their roadshows and their issuance. So in terms of its importance, in terms of people's investment decision making, it's becoming much more important. I think in terms of the way people think about portfolio construction, they're obviously mindful of the fact that there are a lot of investors now who have these ESG requirements in their stewardship codes, have you know, are required now by law in some cases to make sure they're monitoring those types of factors in their investments as well. So all I can see happening from here is there's going to be greater weight of money behind you know, good ESG practice. Um, and so when it comes to either traditional bonds or these new sort of link structures, then um, I think the capital flows and, and the impact that has in terms of, you know, premiums that, that investors are going to charge, you know, potentially uh, weaker ESG actors is going to be much higher. So I think it's definitely a trend um, which is not only going to affect where people invest, but also the risk premiums that companies are paying. So th- the natural tension has always been that if you buy a green bond, because the weight of money goes into it, the yield is lower, hence the total return is a lot lower, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how should we think about it from a investor's perspective? Is it better to think of it as the return opportunity is clearly lower because the yield that you're buying at is lower? Um, and if you take it the other way, that if you don't have any sustainability criteria or you're vulnerable to sustain, to, to green issues, that you could end up losing a lot more money. So from an investor perspective, do we think about these as op- buying opportunities or do we see them as, I need to be in this, otherwise I might lose money in the future? So I think when it comes to fixed income, the asymmetry is always to the downside, right? (laughs) So you're going to lose much more than you stand to gain. And where in the equity market, if you invest in a, in a, in a, in a positive theme, you get the growth in, in fixed income. What you're trying to do is essentially primarily avoid the risk of default. And if you get the payback, so companies with poor ESG practice, whether it's governance, whether it's, you know, whether it's, um, on the environmental side, um, these companies could be much more volatile in the future. So your kind of your ratio of, you know, of uh, upside to, to volatility, you know, it becomes more questionable, I would say. So that's one way to look at it. I think the other thing that we're certainly thinking about is the trajectory matters. So risk today is about your profile today. But, you know, thinking about the investment going forward, you definitely want to think about how the trajectory, the ESG journey is going to improve that profile. Because actually, if a company is improving, then you see, you know, those credit, those credit spreads, that discount decline. Um, and that can be a source of extra return. So actually looking for companies that are not necessarily, um, you know, that are probably in more ch- challenging sectors, perhaps, but are making the best impact making the most progress those could be interesting investment opportunities because that premium is going to is going to shrink whereas the companies that are not adapting that are not exiting you know those are companies where you potentially see vulnerability because revenue declines because um you know there's a weight of um you know investor action and that's that could be an impact from a price perspective that's negative so i think it's all very well and good to think about the yield but actually, you've got to think about the volatility and you've got to think about where the upside comes from. And I think there's still that good opportunity in, um, in, in, from ESG, even if you 
discount that sort of best in class premium mm, no absolutely i think that's uh, that's absolutely it's absolutely clear just you know it's very interesting because from an equity perspective when you think about esg you think oh that's opportunity because they can have all these great practices that will make them a better company in fixed income as you say the asymmetry is very very different am i going to get paid back if i'm with a dirty company because they you know pollute the air or something like and then there's a big carbon tax are thrown onto them or or fines or penalties that are so punitive that they uh, can no longer exist and i think that that is the asymmetry which i think is quite interesting from a fixed income and from an investor perspective that probably naturally fixed income investors don't think about um uh you know it's always about the return and it's always the 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 the, the growth of that so michael i think we'll um We'll call it a day here. I, I find myself finding it a very interesting time at the moment. I think some of fixed income has been a little bit boring over the last three months. Uh, and I know that you tell me fixed income, boring is good, uh, which I think is, uh, is absolutely right. Um, but certainly I think we're, we're, you know, there are lots of these sort of sub-trends you know, developing, be it Chinese real estate, be it the Fed and, and, and the UK, supply chain issues, ESG, there's some kind of numerous um, things that we've covered today that I think are exceptionally interesting. So thank you very much for uh, for coming on. Thanks for having me, Maze. It's been a pleasure as always. Great, thank you. Uh, so uh, that uh, wraps it up for us uh, today. As always, if you have any questions, if there's an area that you want us to, to spend a bit more time on, uh, please do email them to us to remind you the email address. It's beyond at fgam so efgam.com please do remember that and obviously we'll try to tackle some of the questions that you send in and of course any of the themes you'd like us to discuss we'll also bring them on to the podcast as well Uh, so with that thank you and speak to you next time